My name is Maggie Freeling. I'm a journalist and producer, and this is Unjust and Unsolved, a podcast about people who I believe are wrongfully incarcerated for crimes that are actually unsolved. You've surely heard stories like these on the news, but the thing is, the ones you've heard about barely scratch the surface. The Innocence Project gives a conservative estimate that about 20,000 innocent people are currently locked away in U.S. prisons. After reading some of these stories, I felt compelled to do something. So I sent 20 letters to people who are locked up despite evidence pointing away from them. Some responded through mail, some emailed, and some called me on contraband cell phones. But all wanted their stories to be heard. So I left my public radio job and decided to do just that. In each episode, I speak with those people, their loved ones, supporters, and lawyers, to shed light on how they wound up incarcerated for decades, despite the evidence, and how that means the crimes they were convicted of are still unsolved. This week, I'm telling the story of Sherry Hayden. On February 23rd, 2008, 63-year-old Patricia Landry was walking to her car when a man tried to snatch her purse. A struggle ensued, and the man jumped into a red pickup truck driven by someone else. Speeding away, the truck hit and ran over Miss Landry, killing her. Witnesses described the driver of the pickup as a young blonde woman in her 20s, and they said she was with two men. Police identified one of the men as Michael Coe. And based on his identification, police homed in on a friend of his, a blonde woman named Sherry Hayden. But Sherry was older, with deep facial wrinkles, very clearly not in her 20s. However, that didn't bother police, and they made a lineup, and Sherry was identified and eventually arrested, tried, and convicted for killing Miss Landry. Ten years later, the Innocence Project New Orleans found that police never did a proper investigation into the crime. During their investigation, the Innocence Project New Orleans found multiple people who said the real killer confessed to them. She was the girlfriend of one of the men in the vehicle, and she was blonde and in her 20s. So why is Sherry still in prison? And who was driving the truck that killed Miss Landry? We'll get to that after this. I came across Sherry's case when I received a letter from someone with government connections asking if I knew of any wrongful convictions in Louisiana that they could help with. I didn't actually. None had really come across my radar. So I reached out to the Innocence Project New Orleans to see if they had any they wanted help with. And instantly they mentioned Sherry's case. I would say that it is so clear in Sherry's case who the true perpetrator is. Even just from reading the file, um, there are hints at it. And yeah, when I read the file, it was truly incredible, the injustice that had been done. And for our season finale, this case is going to have you screaming. Sherry Hayden was born in Louisiana in August of 1962. I mean, I was the only child. My mother died when I was 15. So my daddy took care of me. And that was kind of hard, you know. I mean, that, that was a blow for me, you know. I mean, I was real close to her. Uh, right after that, I kind of quit school. And uh, my daddy worked that night, so I pretty much took care of the house and everything. I kind of took her place, you know. How'd your mom die? 
Although that chapter was tough, Sherry says growing up in Marrero, Louisiana was okay. Her dad was a good provider and she had everything she needed. Life was good. I went to a lot of concerts and whenever I wanted to, you know, go to the French Quarter, it was right there across the river. I did a lot when I, when I was younger, you know. What concerts did you go to? You didn't tell me. Uh, I used to go to, uh, I mean, I went to Guns N' Roses, I went to uh, Leonard Skinner, Z-Top, yeah. I went to Aerosmith, I've seen the Rolling Stones in the Superdome. I went to the day rock and roll. Wow. They used to have a, a warehouse on Chapatulas, and we could, we could go in there for like $2 and see a whole band, you know? And matter of fact, I seen Foreigner there for a dollar. That was back in the 70s, you know? They had a lot going on back then. Wow, that's so Once cool. I had the kids and got married, was, you know, that was a wrap. <laughs> when Sherry was 17, she had her first kid, Jason, with her soon-to-be husband, She knew her husband since she was 13, and they reconnected in their later teens. They went on to have two more kids after that, Robert and Amy. When you got married and had the kids, you you just stayed home and took care of them? Yeah, right. Yes, that's all I did. I took care of my husband. He was like a child himself, you know? (laughs) Her relationship with her husband wasn't great. My husband never did help me. You know, he was an alcoholic and... uh, Sherry says besides the abuse, she couldn't work and he wasn't providing, so they had to get on welfare. Eventually, she had enough. She moved to Mississippi. That's why I took my kids, and uh, so he couldn't find me, and nobody would tell him where I was at. And after that, I started working, and I just kept working and kept working. Sherry was a single mom and started working like crazy to take care of her three kids. She waitressed, was a janitor, worked at McDonald's, and was even a certified nurse assistant for a while. She, my mom was very good. Mom, you know. This is Amy Hayden, Sherry's youngest. In my opinion, she was always a good mom. Yeah. What are your, some, some of your favorite memories with her? Um, <clears throat> my favorite memories... Um, she singing, cooking, and then when on hot days, she take us to the um, to Lafitte and bring us swimming. Or there, there's a park down in Lafitte also. She take us down there and let us go play. You know, we just got together a lot. We built up a and went to the bayou and went swimming and skiing, you know, stuff like that. Once her kids were grown, she moved back to Marrero to be with her dad. Morero is directly across the Mississippi River from New Orleans, and although they are close, they're worlds apart. Unlike the charm that attracts tourists to New Orleans, Morero is more rural and poor. Morero's poverty level is higher than the state's average and has a crime rate that is higher than 80% of the state. Although Sherry grew up poor, she made an honest living and did not involve herself in the crime that many people around her did. Sherry was working at a local donut shop. She had her family and her grandkids and was happy. You know, I mean, I was just getting on my life, you know. I was trying to buy me a little trailer and I had to put money down on it. And then my dad was making plans. I had to a wallpaper and tile and I was going to fix it up. But I lost all that, you know. On February 15th, 45-year-old Sherry was driving in a car with her friend and neighbor, 48-year-old Michael Coe, when they were stopped for a traffic infraction. It wasn't a big deal, 
but that traffic stop would change Sherry's life forever. At 1.30 p.m. on February 23, 2008, 63-year-old Patricia Landry was walking to her car in the parking lot of Labor's grocery store in Marrero. Suddenly, a red pickup truck pulled up to her and a man jumped out. He tried to grab her purse, but she wasn't going to give it up without a fight. The two struggled. The man tried to drag the purse back into the truck with him, but the purse was still in Miss Landry's grasp. And in the struggle, she was pulled under the truck and run over and killed as the car screeched out of the parking lot. Miss Landry had lived in Marrero, Louisiana her entire life. She retired as a civilian employee of the Air Force Reserve, where she'd worked for 30 years. She'd been married for 41 years and spent her days doting on five grandkids and Fluffy, the family pet. She was pronounced dead about 30 minutes after she'd been run over. Her family, of course, was devastated. They described her as vibrant, with an infectious laugh, the backbone of the family, and they were determined to get justice. Whoever was driving the truck seemed just as determined to evade police. As the truck sped down the road, it hit another car and kept going. Connie Dutrell was driving the other car. She'd seen the truck turning in front of her into oncoming traffic and tried to stop, but she couldn't. As she hit the car, she was able to see the driver, whom she described as a young girl in her 20s, with light-colored, blonde-brown hair, wearing sunglasses. She said she got a good look at her because the woman stared right at her as they collided. That evening, Tabitha Chason, a witness from the grocery store parking lot, said she also saw a female driver and a male passenger with someone else in the back of the truck. She said the driver was a skinny, very pale, mid-twenties woman with long, strawberry blonde hair and bluish-green eyes. Both descriptions matched, a young 20-something woman with blonde hair. Then officers got a break when a fishmonger from the parking lot identified Michael Coe as the front seat passenger in the truck. Remember, Michael Coe was Sherry's friend from her neighborhood. So officers started looking into Coe's female acquaintances and saw he was stopped with Sherry a week earlier for the traffic violation. Sherry was also a white woman with blonde hair, so they decided to show her picture to witnesses. But Sherry Hayden was 45 and had deep facial wrinkles. She certainly did not pass for a young 20. But regardless, at around 1 a.m., just 12 hours after the incident, officers woke up one of the witnesses, Tabitha Chason. They went to her home to show her a photo lineup, including Sherry Hayden and five other older-looking women. Tabitha Chason identified Sherry, a few hours later, at 7.30 a.m., police were at Sherry's trailer and arrested her based on her connection to Michael Coe. They had yet to find the red truck or identify the driver and his connection to Sherry and Coe, and they had no evidence connecting Sherry to the crime. After her arrest, the woman involved in the hit and run, Connie Dutriel, came to the precinct for a lineup, and she also identified Sherry. On July 13th, Sherry went to trial and was tried together with Michael Coe. The star witnesses were Tabitha Chason from the parking lot and Matt Vinette, the owner of the red truck. The day after the murder, police received a tip that a man named Matt Vinette was involved. Police located him at his house 
and found a 2001 red Dodge Ram pickup, which happened to have just been cleaned with bleach. That evening, after Sherry had already been arrested, Matt Vinette identified her and Co. as being the other passengers in the vehicle. Sherry says she did not hang around Matt Vinette. He was known as a bad guy around town, but she knew him because most people in Marrero knew each other. They had grown up together. At trial, Vinette said he was doing drugs in the backseat of the truck while Sherry was driving and Miss Landry was run over. Vinette took a plea of eight years based on his cooperation. But Sherry had an alibi. Her daughter, father, and stepmom testified that she was at her granddaughter's birthday party during the crime. However, other than calling alibi witnesses, Sherry's defense lawyers didn't do much defending. Her attorney didn't even interview any of the eyewitnesses who identified Sherry because he said they, quote, seemed credible. And the jury thought so, too. With only witness identification as evidence, on July 23, 2009, Sherry Hayden was sentenced to life without parole for second-degree murder of Patricia Landry, along with her co-defendant, Michael Coe. Coe also said he wasn't there and argued that the eyewitnesses' identifications were wrong. Does your family believe in your innocence today? Oh, yeah, oh, yes. All the way. They always did. Yeah. They know, you know I wouldn't do nothing like that, and, you know, and that's one of the things mainly that, you know, really hurt me about me. I was taken away from my children and my grandchildren, you know, and my father, and I lost my father while I was in the end. What was that like to be taken away from everybody you love? Oh, it was terrible, man. It broke me down on the middle end. It's like somebody ripped my heart out of my chest, you know? Today, Sherry is almost 60 years old with terminal brain cancer. After she got to prison, she was diagnosed with lung cancer and received very aggressive treatment and went into remission. But unfortunately, she has since developed brain tumors, and doctors are concerned the cancer is spreading. Does it does it ever scare you to think that you have cancer in prison and, and you might not get out to see your kids again? Oh, yeah, no, that's the main thing, you know. I pray about that every night. You know, I just don't want to die in here, you know. Sherry has been in prison for over 10 years. I mean, it's hard enough going through all this without the children, you know, without my children. I mean, I can call them, you know, but it's not like them being there for me, you know. They used to come up here and visit me, and they would come for the Christmas things and for the, for the Easter things, you know. We all get together, and they give them gifts, and they give them, you know, all kind of stuff. They enjoyed it. We all enjoyed it. We took pictures and everything. But they always started crying because when they left, they wanted me to go home with them. It breaks my heart every time when I, we would have to leave because I know it's terrible. I'm, I'm, I'm 36 years old and I still break down every time I have to leave because I don't want to leave. This is Sherry's daughter, Amy, again. I think that's the hardest thing on me, you know, it's bad enough not being able to have my mom with me, but I think the, the worst is whenever they don't, the younger ones when they grow up, my, 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 my kids, you know, when they there's grandparents day and stuff like that at school and they, they don't have their grandmother, they can't have their grandmother there to be able to participate in things like this. 
it, it kind of breaks my heart because I just wish they could have that. <laughs> when Sherry was first convicted, she immediately applied to the Innocence Project of New Orleans. Obviously, lots of people apply to us and we're not, unfortunately, we're just not able to help everyone. This is Sherelle Arnold, a staff attorney at the Innocence Project New Orleans. Sherry even applied to our program before she was technically eligible because her conviction wasn't even final yet. That's how desperate she was. Years after her conviction in 2018, Sherelle and the Innocence Project of New Orleans finally were able to take a look at Sherry's case. Like you said, you've got thousands of cases. I mean, what stuck out to you about Sherry's? I mean, I, I guess you probably had to take her over some other people. So what really stuck out to you about her? It, it's really striking to me just how much evidence the police missed out on because of their rush to judgment in terms of instead of continuing their investigation beyond the first 12 hours, um, essentially once they identified Sherry Hayden as a potential suspect, they never looked anywhere else. Going back to the beginning, witnesses all described a young 20-something woman. You can look on our website and the photos of Sherry from the time. While she is lovely, she is very clearly not 20. It's incredible that in this case, police were so rushed to show a witness a photo array that didn't contain photos that matched the witness description that they not only decided that they had to put it together in the middle of the night so quickly that even police thought that the photos weren't, that Sherry stood out in the photos. The police thought the photo of Sherry from the traffic stop differed from the other photos in the lineup and stood out. It's unclear why, but instead of creating a fair lineup, they instead made all the photos black and white. This is police putting together the lineup who thought that this lineup is so unex unacceptably suggestive that they had to do something to mute her characteristics. Um, a lineup that mutes someone's physical characteristics should not be used for identification purposes. It defeats the entire purpose of a photo array to try to make people blend in with one another enough such that it might be acceptable to wake a witness in the middle of the night, 12 hours after the crime occurred to try to make this identification. Not only was the lineup suggestive, but the witness, Tabitha Chason, said that police goaded her into identifying Sherry after she told authorities that the women in the lineup were too old. In a sworn affidavit, she said that police kept putting their finger near Sherry's photo and asking her, are you sure it's not her? Chason said that she thought the police knew something that she didn't and went along with it, wanting to do the right thing and help the Landrys. This process was not recorded as it was in the middle of the night at Chason's home. The next day, the police arrested Sherry. They brought in the car crash witness, Connie Dutriel, to the station to do a lineup, and she also identified Sherry. I guess one point of like contention might be that two people did identify her in a lineup. Um, how do we rationalize that? Sure. I mean, the problems with the first lineup, right, with Ms. Chason's lineup, um, we have no reason to believe that those problems didn't also exist for the second lineup the next day. The second lineup was done in the police station. Where I'm certain they have the ability to record someone if they want to. And the fact is they didn't want to record these identifications. Not only was this process not recorded, but by this time, Sherry's picture had already been all over the news. This was big news in Marrero when this happened. Her photograph had already been shown on the news 
as the woman who was arrested, right? All of those problems. Her photograph was shown before one of the lineups. Yes, and in fact, the second, the um, the witness who viewed the, sec the lineup on the next day, so she goes in to make her identification. And before she leaves the house, her son says, hey, the lady they arrested is the woman who worked at the donut shop. So he had seen her photo, right? He knew who it was. I don't know if this witness had seen her photo or not, but it was widely distributed on the news before she even went in. The officers followed none of the best practices. This is G. Park, executive director of the Innocence Project New Orleans and co-counsel for Sherry. The officers who conducted the identification procedure should not have been the officers who were investigating the case, right? Um, there are certain biases that happen if the person who's administering the lineup knows who the suspect is, right? And so that should not have happened. They didn't give them give her proper instructions. They didn't um, record her confidence level. And so there are many things they did during this procedure that uh, no law enforcement officer, right, who understands what the best practices are, who understands science behind eyewitness identifications and memory would have done. Uh, had the entire lineup procedure been recorded, right, been memorialized, we wouldn't be in this position. Um, we would have known exactly what happened, exactly what the officers told the witnesses. We would be able to see or at least hear all of that. And one could say, okay, but the police investigated, and despite the discrepancies in age, witnesses can be wrong, and Sherry was the best suspect. But if the police had done any investigation, they would have found a better suspect. Jessica Billiot was a young, blonde, 20-something-year-old woman, and she was the girlfriend of Matt Vinette, the owner of the red truck and star witness who placed himself in the truck when the crime took place. Jessica was 23 at the time and had been dating Vinette for four years at this point. She and Vinette were heavy drug users who had long rap sheets, unlike Sherry. Jessica absolutely should have been investigated as a suspect, especially after Vinette admitted to participating in the crime. You know, we spoke to um, several individuals who let us know what they saw and what they heard Jessica doing immediately afterwards, right? I mean, people saw her, she packing frantically, right? We got affidavits of folks saying she was changing her hair color, trying to change her appearance. We got affidavits from folks saying that the way Jessica was acting immediately after this crime was indicative of her guilty conscience. Police spoke to Jessica a couple of times and got varying stories about what she was doing at the time of the crime. In one interview, she says she was shopping with a friend. In another story, she says she was with her dad. But both were false, and the police never followed up on them to figure that out. Today, Jessica says she was buying pills. During their investigation... G and Sherelle have gone and talked to Jessica multiple times. They confronted her on her differing alibis. In 2018, Sherelle went and spoke to Jessica for the last time in an hour and a half long conversation. that you were with other people. Yeah, I was talking. But when I talked to the other people that you told the police that you were with, 
they all said, no, they weren't with you. Um, so is there, I guess, is there a reason you wouldn't have told the police about Dean? Is there a reason? Yeah. If, if you were at Dee's house, wouldn't you have told the police that you were there? I mean, I'm sure that's what I told them. So I don't even remember. It's not. I don't even remember. Um, but when you talked to the police, you were lying, right? Because you told them different alibis that none of them were true. And then when you went and talked to court, you told them something that wasn't true. I was at this lady D's house yeah. when everything was going down, like still like it was it was just like like a lot of shit on one. Yeah. So where did he live? In Oakville and Ohio on Barrett's Iron. Yeah. At the end of Barrett's Like, how do you know her? It was just a friend. She was, um, it's just hard, right? It's hard because I don't know why you wouldn't tell the police. Because I didn't tell them I was fine bills. Yeah? I didn't. Okay, so why Why would you lie? Because I was fine bills. Okay. I was young. I was, yeah. I was really young when this happened. I didn't. She basically admits that she had lied to police repeatedly about her alibi. This interview was filed by G and Sherelle in 2018 in Sherry's first post-conviction relief application claiming ineffective assistance of counsel. They also said they found multiple Brady violations, instances in which prosecutors didn't share evidence that would have been favorable to the defense, as is required by law. During their investigation, G and Sherelle came across a man named Warren Petrie. Petrie was another witness in the parking lot the day Miss Landry was killed. He also said he saw a young-looking woman, a little blonde girl, between 20 and 23, driving the truck. So Mr. Petrie knew what he saw, and he told police what he saw, and police failed to document that. G and Sherelle discovered that Petrie had even gone to the prosecution after the pretrial hearing and said he was very close to the victim before she was killed. He said he was concerned about one of the witnesses' accounts of events. At the pretrial, Tabitha Chason said that she had actually tried to help Miss Landry get her purse back. But Petrie says he does not remember anyone else being there. He told the prosecution she was lying. And not only did the prosecution not call Petrie at trial, but none of this was disclosed to the defense. It could have been used to discredit Chason. And then there was a damning confession. We had additional Brady evidence from a woman who unfortunately is now deceased, Patricia Pavia, who was able to tell us that she had alerted the authorities to her niece, Jessica Billiot's guilt. Jessica's aunt, Patricia Pavia, said Jessica was responsible for the crime. This information was never turned over to the defense, but even more shocking, the police actually knew about this during their investigation and did nothing about it. She had actually gone into her local police department and told officers that her niece, Jessica Billiot, had committed this crime and she was just brushed aside and told not to worry about it, that everything was under control. 
Not only did the police know that, but they also knew that they had received tips from known and trusted confidential informants that Jessica Billiot had confessed to other people that she had participated in this. Jessica was not only acting strange, but G and Sherelle discovered that Jessica supposedly confessed to killing Miss Landry to multiple people. Jessica's own mother told a neighbor that her daughter was responsible for the crime. Jessica's cousin also said Jessica confessed to her hours after the incident and was frantically packing to leave town. This is all outlined in the post-conviction relief packet filed by the Innocence Project New Orleans in January of this year. Sherelle also confronted Jessica about this. I don't even know how to tell you this, but people have told me that you were the lady driving that truck. Excellent. Um, I was a people have told me that you told them that you were the lady driving that truck. Oh, I see that. Um, well, that, I mean, that's what, I, you know, that's what I, I guess, can you think of a reason that people would say that you told them that you did? I have no idea. Because, I mean, this is really serious. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, who would, who would, like, say that? Because it, it wasn't just one person, Jessica. It was a lot of people. I mean, it was, like, five or six people who told me that, and people who don't know each other. They basically told me and told Devin that they had talked to you either the day that that happened or, like, the next day, and they told me that you were panicked and that you were packing stuff in suitcases and that you were really, really upset and that you were saying, that you thought that maybe y'all had accidentally hit somebody when you took her purse, and that Matt came in, and that Matt said, like, don't say anything, and that you had wanted to go and tell the police, you know, and you had wanted to do the right thing. Well, that's not what happened. I mean, that's that's so far fetched. Like, I was packing stuff. Yeah, that you were packing stuff up because you were real, like, you were very worried. But I mean, just the well, of course, I was like, you know, I was like, right, but sure. I, I just because of what was going on, yeah, you know, yeah, I was like, that's you know, that was my boyfriend, and I was yeah. serious, but now I wasn't driving the truck, I was, I was, I like freaked out, like, yeah, what the fuck, you know, yeah, but now because they they said that, that you said that you were driving, yeah. and that that's why you were so worried. No, I wasn't kind of saying that. Okay. Like everyone agrees that the person that like the person that was really responsible for that lady dying was whoever grabbed her purse, and that was definitely a man. Like I don't know who it was, right? I've heard some people tell me different things, but like that wasn't that obviously wasn't you, right? Like no one's saying that was you. Like I don't think that anyone thinks that the person driving that truck meant to. I don't think the person driving the truck. No, I definitely think it was a freak accident. Yeah. Or, no, I mean that's what I think too. Like I think it was. I don't think it was on purpose at right. all. Yeah. And I think that. So I, I just, I wanted to give you the chance, you know, where if it was from everything you told me, everything that everyone else told me about how like awful that was to you, and how I mean people told me that literally like. Matt would say jump and like you would jump. 
because I thought that they were probably telling the truth. Okay, I need a lawyer. <laughs> okay, I mean, that's, like, I'm not the police or anything. I know, but you sent me yeah. here telling me I'm lying. You sent no, me I mean, maybe you're not. Maybe you it's, are. like, a big yeah. coincidence, but I just don't. Do you believe, like, I understand what you want to tell me, you know? But, like, try to understand no, I mean, no, I'm coming from, it's you know? fucked up. Yeah. Like, no, that's yeah. why I came. Yeah. No, I mean, and I really like you. you know? <laughs> like making this up like yeah I think that's really messed yeah, up yeah, right. but I just don't I, I don't have an explanation for that like I don't and know I don't either and that's, yeah. that's what's messed up I don't either okay like nothing I, yeah. I don't know what to tell you okay and this is the basis for the ineffective assistance of counsel claim G and Sherelle are presenting Before trial, a confidential tip came into the police that Jessica may be involved. Sherry's court-appointed attorney, William Doyle, knew this and never followed up to help his client. He was also aware of Jessica's differing alibis. But again, he never followed up. This information was out there, was readily available, if the trial counsel had taken the time to investigate right, to actually go and talk to people that Jessica may have had interactions with. But that never happened. He never talked to her. He didn't talk to members of her family. If Doyle did, he would have found all of this out and presented reasonable doubt that it was not Sherry and it was Jessica. Innocence Project New Orleans states that any one piece of evidence could have been enough to change the course of Sherry's trial. Instead, Doyle called Jessica as a defense witness without any prep. It seems like he knew she was an alternate suspect, but was not prepared to present this since he didn't do any investigating. And that's why I'm wondering, why did he even call her? What was the purpose of calling her if he didn't even have his ducks in a row? Yeah, unfortunately, you know, I think we can't, obviously, we, G and I can't speak to his um, trial strategy. If, I think that's a very generous term, frankly. Um, 
But I will say that speaking with some of the jurors in Ms. Hayden's case, um, they had no idea why they were hearing from this woman. They had no idea. And some of them, when they heard that, in fact, we had we had found evidence that she was guilty, they couldn't believe it um, in terms of they just, it wasn't even in their minds that this is why they were potentially hearing from her was because she was a suspect. In fact, according to court filings, Brandon Pons, the jury foreman who convicted Hayden, told Innocence Project New Orleans, quote, if the jury had gotten to hear this, I think it would have been a totally different trial. Since Miss Landry's death, Jessica has gone on to commit a number of crimes, including possession of heroin, solicitation, burglary, and theft of a motor vehicle. G and Sherelle filed a second post-conviction relief a couple of weeks ago with the addition of witness Tabitha Chason, who said that police coerced her to identify Sherry, even though she had her doubts about age. Chason came forward in 2019. One of the problems Sherry has going forward is that in the past, a judge has denied her application for post-conviction relief because the evidence presented was filed more than two years after post-conviction and sentencing. G and Sherelle have to show that Sherry did her diligence to find new evidence in a timely manner. And Sherry, I mean, grew up poor, right? She is not a woman of much means. Um, she was undereducated. Imagine being a life sentenced prisoner, right? A poor life sentenced prisoner sitting in prison. Like, how are you going to find new evidence in your case? Like, how are you going to do it when you don't have money for an investigator, when you don't have money for counsel, for an attorney to represent you? So Sherry would have to find it on her own. And to do that, she'd have to request her records and transcripts. In their filings for relief, the Innocence Project New Orleans states that to get her records would cost over $2,000. Sherry, who again was indigent, would have to work in prison to get money to get the records. And not only did her stage four lung cancer prevent her from working, but prison wages were at most 48 cents an hour. The Innocence Project New Orleans points out her average earnings in six months was $44.17. It would have been impossible for her to make enough money to even get her transcripts. But even so. Much of the new information was learned through our investigator going out um, and speaking to people and knocking on doors, um, right, of months worth of investigation. Um, and so the evidence was out there, but even had Sherry had a little more money to purchase records, she still wouldn't have been able to find it. And I think that's shared by many, many people who are incarcerated. Although they are fighting for Sherry's innocence, the death of Miss Landry is not overlooked. Everyone's heart goes out to her and to her family. Um, we certainly would love to see the case solved and for her to actually get justice because what in their rush to try to find justice for right this very sympathetic victim, um, they sort of let that overpower every good investigation skill, <laughs> right? What do you want to do when you get out? What do you think about? Well, 
the main thing I think about is getting out and spending time with my family because I miss so much time with them, you know. Sherry says she doesn't think she'll be able to work with how bad her health has gotten. I would like to help people like me, you know, with anything I can do for them, you know. It's just unbelievable, you know, I mean, the experience, you know. In any way I could help him to get through it, I'd you know, like to do something. And she also just wants to get back to that good old New Orleans seafood. Oh, I miss seafood the most. Because I had a lot of seafood where I lived, and the people I knew, they worked on a lot of trawl boats, and they brought me shrimp and crabs, social crabs, <laughs> oysters, and all kind of. My freezer stayed full of seafood. The state has to file their motions by the end of February. And we will know then what's next for Sherry. If you want to help Sherry, please go to the Innocence Project New Orleans website. You can also write to John Bell Edwards, the governor of Louisiana. And you can write to Sherry to show your support. You can find links to all of this on our website, unjustandunsolved.com. Thanks for listening to season one of Unjust and Unsolved. I look forward to having you listen to season two. Stay tuned. If you want to support the work I'm doing, please, please rate and review and share this show. It takes two seconds and the payoff is huge. The more people who hear and share, the more reviews, the more attention, and the more likely word about these wrongful convictions will reach the right people. Unjust and Unsolved is produced and reported by me, Maggie Freeling, with editorial consulting from Amber Hunt. For more information and resources, go to unjustandunsolved.com. You can find Unjust and Unsolved on Twitter and Instagram at Unjust Unsolved and join the discussion on Facebook at Unjust and Unsolved Podcast Discussion Group. Unjust and Unsolved is a production of the Obsessed Network. You can find all their shows at obsessednetwork.com.